Hey again, everyone. It's Sam. I know it's been a while since I last talked to you guys, so I hope you're all doing well. It's getting into the holiday season here in the United States, so if you're from these parts, you probably are too. Remember that no matter what the movies say, it's perfectly okay not to be with family or to be super happy at this time of year, and I just hope that you're able to relax a bit at least. So, happy holidays. I also want to thank you for the continued warm welcomes you guys have been giving me. Next, I also looked at your responses from my letter on the Zabrak, and it seemed that many of you were open to a lot of the options I offered you then. So, my plan for the letter directly after this one will be to talk about interactions between different cryptids. After that, we will return to the topic of Sasquatch, since that letter was my first and it was so short. Then, maybe I'll go back to Dogman, and then we'll see what we do from there. I don't know if there will be enough questions to do a purely Q&A-focused letter, but if there eventually are, that could happen, since many of you seem to be open to that. So keep the questions coming if you would like me to do that. In any case, I'll keep doing the little Q&A sections at the beginning of these letters, per usual. Speaking of which, I think that's about all the introductory stuff that I wanted to get out of the way. So, let's start on this letter's Q&A. Are there any monsters that come from a reality other than ours? This is something that other people sometimes ask, but I have to say that's probably not true. I don't know what I personally believe in when it comes to multiple realities, and I'm not sure how exactly you could demonstrate or prove that cryptids came from such places. I suppose that it's theoretically possible, but I kind of doubt it, and there isn't really any evidence to support it, at least among the hunters, that is. There are aspects of many monsters that don't seem to fit into the rest of our world, though. So when it comes to creatures like fairies, I can see how the theory might have come around. So I won't definitively say no, but I can't really say that I think it's a yes either. Have I met a Mapinguari? No, I have not, but my friend Ray has. I've talked about Ray before, in my letter on Camazots, but if you haven't listened to that, he's a hunter who works in Brazil often in the rainforest of the Amazon there. The Mapinguari is a monster species from the region that resembles a Sasquatch that is thought to be related to them in some way. They're very elusive, but they're much more aggressive than Sasquatches, and Ray has had to try to kill one. It's not something I would ever want to experience, but maybe I can reach out to Ray and see if he would like to tell that story. He's had some very interesting experiences in both Brazil and other parts of Central and South America. Can any or all cryptids speak English or other human languages? Well, yes. Most of the human-like monsters, such like vampires or some species of fairy, speak the languages of whatever human culture they live near, as you'll see in this letter. For example, fairies that live in the British Isle tend to speak English, Welsh, Irish, or Gaelic, as well as the native language or whatever species of fairy they belong to. There are a few different fairy languages and dialects. Some reptilian monsters, like the Ala, have also been reported to communicate in human speech as well, through telepathy. Much like the Maka that I've dealt with, the fox spirits of East Asia also speak the local human languages, such as Japanese, Chinese, or Vietnamese. So, this rule goes for many of the human-like cryptids of the world. Much like other species of non-human apes, Sasquatches also seem to be capable of at least understanding human language 
if not literally speaking it. Some Sasquatches have learned to use limited sign language as well. So those are the first few examples that came to mind of monsters that speak and understand human speech, although it's by no means all of them. Do transforming cryptids ever turn into other types of cryptids? This is an interesting question that I don't know if I ever really thought about. The asker of this question also saw that this might be a reason for the varying accounts of certain monsters. I can't find any records that mention shapeshifters, specifically turning into other monsters, but I don't see a reason why this couldn't happen in some cases. Some of the alternate forms of shapeshifting cryptids do in fact resemble different types of monsters. For instance, walkers can take a shape that is partially human and partially animal, which I believed we talked about in a letter. The macaw I thought also became a combination between an owl and a human, which could explain some of the accounts of the owl man. So, I've never seen a shape-shifting monster specifically become another cryptid, but I guess that it could happen. Is there a cryptid that I haven't encountered that I would like to? I've been fortunate enough to have seen a variety of cryptids, but there are always more out there. I find the dragon-like monsters of the Balkans fascinating, and I think that seeing one would be an incredible experience. Maybe that's because I like dinosaurs so much. I love all kinds of animals, though. Cats are amazing creatures, and although I have run into a wampus cat, I'd love to see a water cat or a blue mountains cat. I've also heard how beautiful and otherworldly certain kinds of fairies are, so maybe one day my nephew will introduce me to some of the ones he knows. I also think it would be very cool, but very scary to meet certain ghost-like cryptids, like the Kunyak, since they're not necessarily malevolent, so good question, with a lot of different answers. What is the difference between a Wendigo and a tall deer? I go into much more detail on this in my letter about Wendigo, but essentially, they are two different species. Wendigos are an offshoot of humans, as they come about from humans who are transformed. Tall deer are warped and twisted versions of the monsters known as deer people. They look nothing alike. The question also asked if tall deer are capable of speech, and no, they are not. Before they reach the point of becoming a tall deer, yes, they are. But they seem to lose this capability once they transition. Wendigo cannot speak traditionally either, but they are known for their disturbing mimicry abilities. Again, I would point you back to my letter on both species for detail on the subject. It's a common confusion, which is part of the reason I wrote these letters in the first place. Is there any organization that breeds werewolves or dogmen? Dear God, no. I don't know why such a thing would ever need to exist, but I'm very glad that it doesn't. Do the hunters have a central place to collect data on monsters? I don't think I've talked about this before, so this is a good question. The hunters do indeed have a central database called the Repository. Most people call it the Rep. It's primarily an electronic system and it contains information on basically everything we know about cryptids. It contains post-action write-ups, research reports, historical records, and much more. It's very sensitive stuff, so while guides have 24-7 access to the rep, the rest of us must get permission before we use it each time. There's stuff that's not in the rep, particularly older material, but these days pretty much everything goes in there. This is one area where I can't share a lot of stuff because the rep and its contents are treated as very confidential. But it's a fascinating system, and I have spent time reading different things and just out of curiosity and personal interest. Okay, 
That's where I'm going to end the Q&A this time, because I expect this letter to be on the longer side. Let's start with the usual background information. This time, we're going to be talking about one of the monsters people have been asking about ever since these letters began. Vampires. This experience also involves fairies, but I've given some more info on them in the Kamazots letter. So, check that one out if you want to know more, and I'll add some more details on them during the story as needed. So, we'll start with vampires. Vampires are a bit of a mystery, even to themselves as well as outsiders. They resemble humans in almost every way. However, they are a good deal stronger and faster, and they live for a significantly longer time. Although they are not immortal by any means, much like walkers, vampires have the innate ability to influence others to a large degree, even though it's not total mind control or hypnosis. There are also sanguivores, which means that they feed primarily in blood, and they need to drink a certain quantity of it to survive. Vampires are capable of eating and drinking other things like humans, but they don't need to. Beyond this, vampires are remarkably like humans in most ways. They have reflections and mirrors, they don't burn or sparkle in the sunlight, and some of them even love to season their food with garlic, but they do have some unique cultural traits, which I'll talk about in a bit. If you've listened to my previous letters, you may remember a bit of what I've said about vampires' origins, but if not, I'll copy and paste exactly what I said in a previous letter to refresh your memory. Vampires are a separate species from modern humans, Homo sapiens, and they can only have children with other vampires. This is where most vampires come from, regular old reproduction, just like anything else. However, a human who meets certain criteria can literally undergo a rapid genetic overhaul and become a vampire. It's an incredibly strange process that hasn't been documented very well, but it involves one or more of the following three conditions. Excessive consumption of human blood, contact with vampiric bodily fluids, and or being in certain areas. But some people don't always turn into vampires from only one of these things. So, much like the Wendigo, it seems the location has a lot to do with transforming people into vampires. But it's unclear. Vampires are mostly well integrated into the human society around them. After all, there's not many huge differences between the two species. Like other minority communities, vampires tend to stick together and most know of each other's presence in each area. This is helped by the fact that many vampires in an area are related to one another. So the main social unit for many vampires is the extended family. From what I know, many of these families are somewhat nomadic. By this, I mean that they often move to different cities, towns, states, or even countries. Because, as you might imagine, it might not be great if people around you noticed that you and your family lived for decades or even centuries longer than them. For this same reason, many vampires often change their identities quite often to keep from the radar. It's not a steady or easy lifestyle, but it seems to work well for most of them. Usually, vampire families have one or several main leaders, but it's usually not a formal position. Please note that everything I've just said is very generalized. Like humans, vampires are found worldwide, and like humans, different groups and families all have distinct and unique cultures and ways of living. I think this is a beautiful thing, but it does make it a little tough to establish overall rules. So I think that's all you need to know about vampires before we get started. The story I'm going to tell you took place when Heather was still alive, and when she and I were living together in Washington. 
It was a very unusual hunt, because it was not so much of a hunt as it was an investigation. As I said before, there are some vampires who are part of the hunters, and although most of them are in Europe, there are also a number scattered around the United States, but one of them is named Rebecca, and she lives in Portland, Oregon. She knows my mom. Although I'm not exactly sure how, maybe they met when my mom was in Washington with my dad's side of the family. Rebecca works many cases up and down the West Coast, and she is in Southern California when she was contacted by a vampire family from Seattle. Because they often try to avoid bringing too much attention to themselves, many vampires that have relationships with hunters often come to us with certain problems, especially if the relationship is with a hunter who is also a vampire, like Rebecca. Since Rebecca was busy at the time, she passed the case on to me and Heather, since she knew that we were in the area and my mom had vouched for us. Rebecca called us and gave us the broad details of the case. Essentially, there had been a pair of murders. Yes, I did say murders. And, like I also said, many vampires or other cryptids dwelling within the human world tend to come to the hunters for this sort of thing, rather than getting implicated with the police. More on that in a bit. Two bodies had been found soon after each other, both the vampires belonging to a certain family in the Seattle area. I don't want to give you the actual name of the family, but the name Tosca is from a similar part of the world as the family originally is, so let's go with that. I'll add that from here on out. All the names I'll be giving are not real ones. I was given permission to share these events specifically under the condition that I changed the names of the people involved. Each of the Tosca victims had been clearly killed. And things got even more complicated when it turned out that a family of fairies were the prime suspects. Much like vampires, many fairies live in human societies as well. These are the type of Dina Shi that can pass for human, and they have many names in the different fairy languages. Other fairies simply look far too different to secretly live among humans. The ones that do live in human societies operate very similar to vampires in terms of living in families and moving around often because many fairies are even longer lived than vampires. So, one of the fairy families was originally from Scotland. We'll call them the Robertson family, since that's a common Scottish last name. Ever since coming to Seattle, the Robertsons had evidently had a bit of a rivalry with the Tuscas. The feud was largely based on business and some old grudges that I probably can't give you the details of without revealing identity. There was also a great deal of mistrust involved, which I'll get more into shortly. Rebecca told us all this information and gave us the contact information of the major players in the Tosca family, who we can call Marco. On the drive to Seattle, Heather and I gave Marco a call and got a bit more insight into the situation. He told us the tragic news that the two vampires that had been killed were his daughter, who was 34 years old, and his niece, who was 13 years old. They had been killed in a brutal manner as well being stabbed and slashed with what was likely a knife or some type of bladed weapon. Both bodies had been found at the same time on the street of the house where many of the Tosca family lived. Clearly having been moved to the location, Marco sounded noticeably angry, and rightfully so, when he explains how he thought the killer had positioned the bodies there to taunt the rest of the family. The bodies were being held at a local morgue and Marco agreed to take us there when we arrived. I must stress again that hunters are not your traditional police detectives. 
but we were called in so that the Tosca family could maintain a level of secrecy, and because they knew that we were aware of their and the Robertsons' unique identities. We were stepping into something that was usually in the field of the police, but when it came to trusting people, avoiding confrontation, and keeping relatively off the radar, the Toscas came to our organization first. It might be a little hard to understand, but that's probably because I'm guessing that most of you listening aren't vampires or fairies. At least, I think so. And our guides did let the police know about the situation. Although Sergio said it took some convincing, they eventually let us have our way with the case. At least to start. Like most authorities, I'm sure that the police don't exactly know what the hunters do. But they usually understand that our organization deals with certain unusual circumstances and are generally willing to give us some room to work. In any case, I'm not a private investigator or anything like that, and neither was Heather, and we treated this just like any other hunt. When we got to Seattle, we went to the suburb where Marco and his nuclear family lived. It was big and quite nice, but it did not stand out much. It seemed to be mostly in line with what other houses around the area were like, which of course helped to make the Toscas less conspicuous. Marco was waiting for us when we arrived, and he met us at the door. He was a tall guy, skinny and clean-shaven. He had slick brown hair. He had grayish eyes that were nearly the same color as Heather's, but looked older. Maybe in his late 40s or early 50s, of course. Being a vampire, he was probably a good deal older than that. Thank you for coming, and welcome to our home. Please come in and I'll introduce you to the others, he said. He had a slight accent that sounded like it was from somewhere in Eastern Europe, and his style of speaking was a little formal. We entered the house to find a bunch of people in and around the large living room. There were probably roughly 20. They were all of varying ages, but most of them had a similar physique and appearance to Marco, and that made us realize that he had called the whole family to discuss the situation. This obviously wasn't necessary but I guess that they all wanted to know everything about what was going on with the investigation and to give all the information they could. It was odd, but Heather and I just agreed to roll with it. Marco had us sit on one of the couches, and he placed himself on a chair across from us. Beside him were his wife, and we'll call her Lisa, and another couple who Marco introduced us as his sister and her husband. They were the parents of Marco's niece, the younger girl who had been killed. He introduced them to us, but not everyone else, just saying that the others were also members of the Tosca family. As usual, all the dialogue I'm about to share is from the best of my memory and reconstructions of things. Heather and I took notes, and I wrote down a bunch in my journal immediately afterwards, but I'm filling in some gaps here and there too. I have to ask you not to record us when we talk, please, Marco said when we were all situated. You must understand, we don't like to deal with the authorities, it's a miracle that so many of us are here, Lisa said. She had a similar accent and a way of speaking as her husband did, but she was still perfectly understandable. Uh, got it. It's all good you're here, even if we didn't expect it, Heather said. I often let her start things off, especially when meeting with witnesses or contacts like this. We explained to our audience what Rebecca had told us and then asked them to tell us everything that they knew in their own words. Rebecca gave you the heart of the matter. Someone killed Mai and Marco's daughter, and we don't know who it was, Marco's sister replied. Not for certain, 
but we have a damn good idea. It was one of the Robertsons or somebody working for them. Someone else put in. I understand why you might think that, but how do you know? What gives you such a good idea? Heather asked. There was a long silence, during which somebody started crying. Because we found the Robertson family mark on the bodies, Marco explained. I remember my stomach churning, even though I didn't know exactly what he meant. What mark? Can you give us some more details on that? Like a description? What about this mark? Heather asked. I got the feeling that she knew that Marco was talking about something that she knew about. But still, she seemed to pry for more information. Many groups of fairies have symbols. A bit like flags. The Robertsons have one. And it was carved into both of the girls. Lisa told us. I cringed at the thought of this. And I was dreading having to see it when we went to the morgue later. So you believe that they were marked by this symbol by the killer? Heather asked softly. The others responded with heavy nods. That's not an easy thing to do. Do you think they were trying to send a message? I asked. Of course. That they were the ones responsible. And we need to act. Marco's brother-in-law said. And a bunch of people started to murmur and whisper. It sounded like some of them agreed and others were not fans. Marco held up a hand. No. We are not going to do anything right now. Except let the hunters do their work. Marco stated. Very firmly, and everyone else went quiet. Thank you. I promise that we are going to do everything we can to help, Heather said. I say the same sort of thing too, and with her, it usually seemed to reassure people quite a bit. Do you know why the Robertson family would have done this? What do you think their motive might have been? I asked. At this point, I hadn't yet made up my mind as to whether I thought that the Robertsons had committed the crime, but never did I see any reason yet to believe that they hadn't. The Toskas answered my question by giving me some details that, again, I can't really tell you guys without giving their identity away. But suffice it to say, as I said earlier, that there had been some sort of significant business conflict between the Toskas and the Robertsons. But we never imagined that they would go so far as to murder our children. There's no words for it, Lisa said. There's also animosity between our races, someone said in the background. Once again, Heather nodded and seemed to know what they were talking about. But I felt so out of the loop, so I spoke up. Can you explain that a little bit more? I asked. The Toskas were patient, and they told me that there was, historically, some bad blood between the Dina Shi and vampires. Many fairies, and of course all vampires, resemble humans. But their relationships with humans over time have been quite different. Vampires have often turned to humans as a source of blood, and in rare cases when they become blood-starved, this happens even more frequently. Many vampires, maybe most of them, live very peacefully with mankind, but there is a prevalent stereotype of them being aggressive and dangerous cryptids. Fairies, on the other hand, have historically seemed to have a bit of a soft spot for humans. There are some groups among the Dina Shi who behave aggressively towards humans, but most of them are far more interested in playing pranks and tricks than doing physical harm. There are some fairies that will hurt or even kill humans, but most others are more likely to take your money, your clothes, or your sense of direction than your life. Many of the Dina Shi will even go out of their way to protect and help humans. Because of this, 
Many of them feel like they are natural enemies of vampires. This mostly goes for the fairies that resemble humans, but it applies to some others as well. Because of this, you think that the Robinsons may have wanted to hurt your family? I asked Heather and the Toskas after they all explained this to me. Maybe not just because of this, but it may be a factor of why they don't like us, Marco answered. I still don't know why they would suddenly have killed the girls, though, Heather thought out loud. We asked a few more questions. Who found the bodies? When and where exactly did they find them? What the girls might have been doing when they were killed, and so on. Marco's daughter had been at a playdate at a nearby friend's house and her older cousin had picked her up on her way home. They never made it back there. Marco and Lisa walked us to the spot where the bodies had been found. It was a side street that wasn't terribly busy. Marco's son had been driving back to the house at about 9pm when he had found the two victims at the side of the road. The houses on this street weren't as large or as expensive looking as the ones on the Tosca street, and I imagine that it would be less likely for the ones here to have as many security cameras. In any case, most people don't even know how to recover video files from those sorts of devices, and I wasn't sure if I was ready to be a practical door-to-door -door person asking for that. This was a shame, because with video evidence we might have a much more likely way to find out our culprit. When I asked Marco and Lisa about this possibility, they both shook their heads. We have already asked all the people on this road. No one knows or has seen anything. It's a miracle that our son was the one to discover the bodies, one of them said. With no further leads in that direction, we asked to go to the morgue to see the bodies, so Marco and Lisa took us there. When we arrived, Heather and I didn't even have to show any of the usual identification to the employees. Evidently, it was enough just for us to be with the family of the victims. We went to the room where the bodies were being held and started taking pictures and making observations. I'll spare you most of the graphic details of what we saw, but I already told you the main parts that you need to know. The two bodies were stabbed and slashed in a horrific and unusually brutal manner, almost as if they had been mauled by animals. The wounds had been made by a blade, though, although there were no precision to the blows. It looks like the killer wanted to cause them as much pain as possible. This looks like pure hatred, Heather said. Or inexperience, I said because my initial thoughts had gone into a different direction. Heather gave a thoughtful, hmm, and pointed to the foreheads of the two victims. There, literally carved into their skin, was a symbol, purposely outlined and highlighted with blood. To me, it looked a little like the letter W, and Heather thought it was somewhat resembling a pair of flowers. But Marco and Lisa told us it was a representation of the antlers of a stag, this is the symbol of the Robertson family, of their clan, you might say. It's only used with others of their kind to identify themselves in this world, Marco told us. If he was right, which I assumed he was, then this was a huge mark against the Robertsons. Note that there is an actual human clan in Scotland named the Robertsons, and they have a symbol of their own. But again, those are humans, and as I've said, Robertson it's just the name I'm choosing to use to refer to the fairy family involved in this case. This means that our killer had time on their hands. Enough time to carve the symbol, Heather pointed out. It wasn't a particularly complicated design, but to create it, 
you would have to take a lot of care and effort. They were coming back from the house of your daughter's friend, walking. You last heard your niece was going to pick up your daughter at around 8, and if your son found the bodies at around 9, then that gives a window of plenty of time for the killer to do this. It checks out, especially if the killer had been following them from the start. I put together. We need to talk to the Robertsons. We can't just go in there and start capturing all of them, so I think it's best to just approach them and talk, Heather said. I didn't like it, but we really didn't have any other choice. As she'd stated, we didn't have the numbers or even the best justification to go apprehend the whole family. The best we could do was to try to get some more information, and the whole family presumably wouldn't be able to just uproot and leave just because we came investigating. If one or more of them did wind up disappearing because of our visit, that's when we would update the police, because at that point, the case would become bigger than just the two of us could handle. We were treading further and further into the purview of the regular civilian authorities, but for the sake of general secrecy, we wanted to do what we could for ourselves. It would cause a huge stir if a horde of cops showed up to the Robertsons, and it would put them heavily on the police's radar, which would ruin their secrecy and protection. If they were innocent, then we would have outed them for nothing, and regardless of whether they were innocent, it would have an enormous blowback for the entire fairy group, the hunters, and if their secrecy was compromised, it could even potentially lead to people losing jobs. Of course, you might say that this is what happens when you live in a human society as a cryptid, but I would reply that even cryptids like vampires and fairies don't generally expect to be caught up in double homicide cases. It could happen, of course, but nobody wants it to, and most people also don't expect it to. And for many of the Dinashi and vampires, it usually seems worth taking the risk to live in society rather than alone or isolated. Anyway, after we felt that we had gotten all the information that we could from the Toskas, we thanked them and said goodbye for the moment. Now, it was time to pay the Robertsons a visit. Marco knew the house where most of them lived, as he had been invited over there on a few occasions to attempt to talk things out with the Robertsons. As you might guess, these meetings never worked out quite the way either family would have wanted. The Robertsons live right on the other side of the city from the Toskas, so it took a while to get there. When we eventually did arrive, I noticed that the neighborhood was quite different from the one where the Toskas lived. There were more apartments alongside the houses, and the homes themselves were smaller and less ornate. The Robertsons' house wasn't much different. It was brick and tall, but not very wide. It was getting into the evening, and we saw lights on in the house, but when we knocked, at first, there was no answer. Heather and I looked at each other for a moment and realized that we might not be getting an answer before knocking again. This time a young woman greeted us, but she opened the door less than halfway. She had reddish blonde hair, and I could see in her eyes that she was suspicious, as many of the people we first meet often are. You're not just here bringing us the good news, are you? She asked. I had to stop myself from laughing, both from what she said and from her very generic American accent. It made sense, but in my head, I had been expecting some sort of Scottish brogue. Um, no, I don't think we look like doorbell preachers, right? Heather asked lightly, but the girl remains totally serious. I can practically smell your intentions on you. Something is wrong, isn't it? The girl asked, and I guessed that she had some sort of fairy intuition that was telling her that, 
because I don't think Heather and I looked terribly grim or anything. Somewhat. We're here to investigate a case. A murder case. I know it seems bad, but we're not the police. I spoke up, pulling out my badge and showing it to her. That seemed to get her attention, but she also seemed like she didn't quite know what to think. Right. Come in, I guess, the girl said, opening the door fully and allowing us to enter. We went into the house that resembled the Tosca's insofar, as it was so completely ordinary. In other words, there was nothing around to indicate that the inhabitants were fairies. If you didn't know that piece of their identity, the house could easily have belonged to any standard American human family. I'll let you use your imagination to fill in the details for yourselves. The living room was immediately inside after the foyer, so the girl ushered us in and offered us to sit down. As we were taking our seats on one of the sofas, another lady came in and stopped when she saw us. She looked like the girl who had greeted us, just older and taller. There was something about the way she moved that was a bit different, though. I'm not sure how to describe it. But it was almost like she walked with a sense of nobility. It was proud. A little like the way Heather carries herself, and how Serena carries herself now. They're all strong women, and the way they move immediately gives you a sense of that. We'll call this lady Susanna. The girl who had let us in, who we had learned was Susanna's daughter, explained to her mother who we were and what we wanted, and Susanna introduced herself to us. She seemed less cautious than her daughter, but still a bit guarded. Her daughter ran off and soon came back with a man who we learned was her father, Susanna's husband. We'll call him Edward. He also resembled his daughter and had the same sort of energy around him as his wife. Maybe that energy is a personality thing, but I don't think it's also because they're fairies. Unlike many vampires, the Robertsons are not offshoots or very close relatives of humans. And even with the ones that look like us, such as the Robertsons, something about them just seems very unusual or different. So, you're from the Hunters. It's been a long time since I sat down with one of you, Edward said. And at first I couldn't tell exactly what he meant or what I was supposed to make of it. From what I saw of the guy, he doesn't seem to have many ranges of expression. We're sorry to bother you, we just need to ask you some questions, Heather said. We explained the situation as frankly as possible, and straight up asked them if they had anything to do with it, or at least knew anything about it. Of course, it wasn't likely that they would have admitted it even if they had committed the crime, but you never really know. But judging from their reactions when we told them about what we had learned, they were quite surprised and saddened. They may have been acting, and apparently many Dina Shi are very good at doing so, but both Heather and I felt their sentiment was genuine. I don't know whether I had suspected the Robertsons of the murders or not, and I'm surprised I didn't write that down. Whatever the case, their response to the news alone left me much more confident that they were not responsible. We don't like the Toscas, it's true, but we would never resort to such violence against them, Susanna said. Someone killed a woman and a child, to the Dina Shi and the vampires, and even to you, 13 and 34, so, so young. It's despicable, Edward added. Well, your suspects in the murders mainly because of what was found on the bodies. This was carved into both of their foreheads. 
I said, showing them the photos of the Robertson symbol that had been found on the bodies. Both Edward and Susanna initially looked shocked, but then Susanna started to shake her head. No, that's not our crest. Not exactly. It's missing the flower, she said, which made me frown in disbelief. Was she trying to lie to our faces? She seemed genuine, though, and as I watched her expression shifted from shocked to angry, very angry, I started to get confused. What do you mean? This is what the Tosca's told us about the symbol of your family, I said. But now Edward had started to shake his head too and began to seem equally as furious. Both looked beyond angry, and it was honestly a little scary. As I said before, many fairies are well known for being talented at acting or feigning different emotions. But neither Heather nor I got the sense that this was a sham. No, that is not our crest. Ours has a flower. It's small, but it's an important part of the symbology. It has a meaning. We take our heritage very seriously, as do all the Dinashi. We fairies are a proud race. You must know this. We would never misrepresent something as important as our own sigil, Edward said. I looked to Heather, silently asking for her opinion. She frowned and thought for a moment. Is there anything that you could show us to prove that this isn't your crest? She asked. If this was a test, the Robertsons would have passed with flying colors, because they had plenty of evidence on hand to show that the mark we had found on the bodies was indeed not their family symbol. As you may remember, if you listened to my letter on Kamazots and the Makah, Heather and I had been well exposed to the aspects of the Dinashi and their different cultures before. Later, she did indeed agree that many of the fairies are very proud and, much like vampires, they frequently put a lot of stock in their bloodlines and lineages. Many of the Dinashi, including the family who I'm talking to right now, the Robertsons, trace their ancestry back to the set of two royal fairy courts, which existed hundreds of years ago. That's a whole different topic, though. But suffice it to say that having such a family pedigree is usually a source of great pride for any fairy. It just didn't feel right to me, or Heather, for the Robertsons to have messed up such an important thing as a family crest. Edward and Susanna showed us two different items, all bearing the mark of the Robertson family. First, they took us to their bedroom. In the closet there, Susanna pulled out a little wooden box lined with velvet. It was presumably made to hold jewelry or memorabilia or something like that. Inside, she pulled out an antique handkerchief, white with an embroidered green design. Now we could clearly see the design that the killer had clearly tried to replicate. It was a pair of stylized antlers, which met up on top of a small but still visible flower. Do you see now? The design is two parts. The antlers of the stag represent power and majesty, and the flower stands for growth and beauty. Many of the other Dinashis plant imagery in their own crest. It has a lot of meaning for us, Susanna explained. Now I started to scratch my head. Had the killer really messed up? After that, Susanna and Edward took us down to the basement where we went to a little a clove on one of the walls. Sitting above a picture frame was a unique wooden plaque, engraved with that same mark as the one on the handkerchief. There was no doubt about it. The mark on the victim's bodies was different. But why? They were totally right. Whoever carved the symbol on the bodies didn't replicate it correctly, I told Heather, after pulling her aside for a moment. But was it just some moron who didn't know what they were doing? Heather asked, and although usually... Her iris slang made me smile. This time I just shrugged. I didn't know. We went back to the Robertsons and asked them a few more questions, including an important one. 
Do you know anyone, anyone at all who might have committed this crime, or anyone who might have reason to do so? At first, they both said no, but then Susanna whispered something to her husband, and they had a short exchange before coming back to me and Heather. Maybe there is one person that the Toscas may not have told you about. He was Marco's son, and he was essentially disowned by the family. We don't know why, but the parting was certainly not pleasant, Edward told us. Now the plot was thickening even more, and I couldn't help but wonder why the Toscas hadn't told us about this before. In any case, now we had to go back to them and see what was going on with this son of theirs. It is possible that the Robertsons could have purposefully botched the symbol when cutting it into the bodies, but the items they showed us, combined with their apparently authentic reactions, made Heather and I both think that something different was happening. We thought the Robertsons were in fact being framed. Edward and Lisa said they really didn't know anything else about the situation, so we said our goodbyes and left their house. It was late, and we had been on the road and working the entire day, so we headed to a hotel for the night. I don't know much about the vampire sleep habits, but I imagine that the Toscas were also in bed as well, so it worked out. The next day, we got up bright and early and headed over to the Tosca's house once more. When we got there, we found that Marco had already left to go to work and Lisa was still home. She invited us in again, and we gave her the rundown of what we had discovered at the Robertson's household. At first, she seemed very confused, and when we mentioned her son, her expression suddenly became very dark and suddenly the room became very, very chilly. They were talking about my son, Tristan. We wanted to forget about him. I haven't even said that name in years, she said, and she seemed so incredibly bitter about the topic. What happened with him? Why might he want to hurt you, and why didn't you tell us before? I asked. She shot me an icy glance. Humans are always asking questions. We didn't tell you because we were convinced that the Robertsons were behind everything. We never thought that our son could be involved. I still find it hard to believe that he could do something like this. Twelve years ago, we ordered Tristan to leave the family. Call it exile or banishment. Lisa answered us. Right. The Robertsons used the word disowned, but it seems like vampires are usually very close to their families. It certainly seems that way with you. Is a exile a, a common punishment? I asked. Lisa shook her head sadly. Not at all. But there are some things that cannot be forgiven. As you said, we place very high importance on families and blood relations. To harm one of your own is among the worst crimes that anyone can commit, but especially a vampire. But that is exactly what Tristan did. He was always aggressive, and he often advocated for intimidation tactics when it came to the Robertsons. Humans often think of us as cold and heartless, but Tristan was anything but. His fuse was incredibly short. One day, he got into an argument with his cousin, my nephew Nicholas, who had always searched for the most peaceful resolution to our conflicts with the Robertsons. I was not present, but my other daughter, Irina, not the one who was killed, was there. In her words, the fight began simply with words, but it became physical very quickly. As you may know, we vampires are very durable, but we are equally as destructive. By the time Irina tore Tristan from Nicholas, Tristan had already done so much damage that we truly believed that Nicholas might not survive. Fortunately, he did. We talked the situation over with the family, 
and we all agreed that Tristan should be ejected from our lives for what he had done. That was 12 years ago, and we have not seen him since, Lisa explained. I sat back on the sofa inside. This really was a complicated one. So, you've lost touch with Tristan, Heather asked. Lisa wobbled her head in a way that indicates, sort of. For the most part, yes. But Irina keeps track of his well-being. He likes to be old-fashioned, and he sends letters to her sometimes. Although he is her brother, and my son, and we want him to be alright, even if he cannot be with us, and even if we cannot forgive what he did. Lisa answered. Now we had a potential lead. Do you know if he had said anything compromising in his letters? Did she tell you anything along those lines? I asked, and Lisa shook her head. I suppose I should have known that we weren't likely to find such a blatant clue. No, but you can ask her about this. She was at our meeting yesterday, and she misses the girls who were killed just as much as any of us. I'm sure she'd be willing to help you with anything you need. I'll give her information, Lisa said. Lisa wrote down Irina's phone number and address on a piece of paper for us, and with that, we were on to our next stop. We hopped in the car and started heading to the address, and on the way, we gave Irina a call. She picked up and told us that she was out of the house for work, but offered to meet us at a certain park to avoid drawing the attention we would get if we came to her workplace. We agreed, and we soon were sitting at a picnic table across from her, talking over a few cups of coffee and hot chocolate. It was a classic foggy Seattle day, so I think we were all grateful for the hot drinks. We told Irina everything that had happened since we had last been together. It was a lot better to talk in person than over the phone, especially as we were able to show her some of the pictures we had taken. Irina asked to see them herself because she had never gotten a look at the bodies. She started to cry when we showed her the photos, and Heather held her head down. But she also seemed to get a measure of satisfaction from looking at them too. When we told her what the deal was with Tristan... She agreed to meet us at her house as soon as she got off work so that we could go over Tristan's letters together. Later that night, we found ourselves in the office of her house. The door was closed, but I remember that we could still hear her kids and her husband, who were vampires from a different family, playing in another room. Irina brought out a bunch of Tristan's most recent letters, and although she hesitated before letting us see them, she eventually let us have a look. I don't remember him saying anything that would relate to what he might have done. I'm sure that he wouldn't have told me, of course, but I don't think you'll find any hints or things like that, but feel free to look, Irina told us. We scanned through the letters from the past year, which was a few pages long, but there were only seven of them to go through. Tristan had ornate, flowy handwriting in cursive, which Irina told us was because their parents had made them learn how to write like that from a young age. It made me wonder exactly how long ago that was, because although Irina looked to be in her 40s, I've already told you about vampire lifespans. Each of the letters was dated and signed, but there were no real details that related to the murders. The letters also had no return address, so we couldn't get an exact location of where they had been sent from. However, Tristan spoke at multiple points about how he worked at a warehouse for a certain company that I will not name. There was also one spot that he gave the name of a bar that he regularly went to, along with the name of the bartender who was apparently his friend. Heather and I immediately called Sergio and started doing some research of our own. Between all of us and Irina, we managed to determine that Tristan was likely residing in a small town to the southeast, which I also will not name. 
Heather and I talked it over and decided that our best bet was to go to the warehouse and see if we could get the address to Tristan's house, then go there to confront him. Please, I beg you, do not hurt my brother if you can't help it. I know him. He could very well be the one who killed them, but I still do not want to see him killed either. Irina said as we were getting ready to leave. If we can do anything to prevent bloodshed and still accomplish our goal, that is what we will do. We always want to come out with that outcome. I, I promise. I said to reassure her. Heather put a hand on her shoulder and she nodded after a minute. Heather and I jumped in the truck and headed out to the town that we had identified, alternating driving and napping and stopping for a quick dinner at a roadside diner. Our destination was far away, so by the time we got there, it was very late at night. And was well after the workday had finished. We pulled off into an empty lot and snuggled up in the back of the truck, which, by the way, is a very convenient place to sleep when you're on the road for a long time. I always keep a sleeping bag and multiple blankets in the back of my truck for this very reason. In the morning, we found the warehouse and parked a short distance away from it, where we could see it, but weren't conspicuous ourselves. To avoid attracting any undue attention, Heather went into the warehouse alone. Two people would be more likely to be seen than one, as you probably know. I'm also black and native, which means that I have brown skin, and in this town, that was basically an anomaly. So we figured that Heather would seem less out of place. Heather could also perfectly imitate an American accent, so there was no worry that anyone would pick up on her Irish one. I hung out in the car until Heather came back. Okay, he's working today. I got a good look at him. And I know which car is his. Let's wait here and tail him when he leaves at the end of the day, Heather told me. Did he see you? I asked her. No, I don't think so. And if he had the same sort of sense as the Robertson's daughter, he didn't give any indication of it. I think we are in the clear, she answered. I went to grab us some food and for the rest of the day we just sat in the truck talking and watching the warehouse. Eventually, as the sun began to get low, we saw people beginning to leave the building. One man came out, dark-haired and thin, and I was surprised at how much he looked like a younger, bearded version of his father. It seems like both vampires and the Dinashi side often bear a strong resemblance to their family members. Tristan had a very different body language than Marco, though. He looked haggard and worn out, and he walked to a gray sedan that didn't look much better than him. Heather pointed him out, but she really didn't need to. As he began driving away from the warehouse, we waited for a moment and then began to follow him. Thankfully, Tristan didn't go far, and he never seemed to catch on to our presence, because he went up the driveway of a single-floor house and disappeared inside. Heather and I parked across the street and headed up to the house. I remember hesitating before knocking unsure if this was the right approach, but Heather had told me that it was, and if we had done it with the Robertsons, we could do it now. After all, we didn't know for sure Tristan was even guilty, so we knocked, and Tristan opened the door, glaring at us with what was clear suspicion. For some reason, I decided to speak up and cut to the chase. Are you Tristan Tosca? I asked him, and his eyes narrowed. Why are you asking? He responded. We're investigating a pair of I started to say, but I didn't even get a finish before Tristan lashed out and pushed me with a hand. When I say that vampires are fast and strong, I mean it. I went careening backwards and almost broke my neck falling down the stairs of the front porch. I saw stars as I hit the ground, and the wind was knocked out of me, stunning me for a good few moments. 
By the time I staggered to my feet, I heard crashing and slams from inside the house, and Heather and Tristan were nowhere to be seen, and probably inside. It looked like Heather had left me in favor of going after Tristan, which was a smart move. Usually, she and I had prioritized checking on our teammates over chasing down a target, but in this case, I had only been pushed, and I think she knew that it would take quite a bit more than that to bring me down. As I started for the door, I heard two gunshots from inside. Heather and I had brought our guns, as usual, and she wouldn't shoot without reason. That meant there was a fight going on. I pulled out my pistol and ran into the house, heading straight for the direction of the house. I came through a hallway and almost collided head-on with a bloody Tristan, who was rushing full speed through a sort of middle room that connected two halls. I managed to jump aside, just in time to avoid Tristan's incoming left hook. I was still in his way though, so I tried to level my gun and take aim at him. He full-on tackled me, knocking me backwards. It felt a lot like the time I've told you guys when I was hit by a dogman, and that's saying something. It was almost unbelievable how much force was contained in that body that appeared to be so human. If I had hit the floor or a solid wall, I could have been hurt a lot more seriously, but instead I fell through an unsupported portion of the wall, and that served to soften my fall somewhat. I usually try to write down the blow-by-blow -blow process of any given fight as much as I can remember in my post-action write-ups in my journal. In this case, though, I don't remember the exact details of what happened next, partially because it was so chaotic and partially because the house was dark, but I remember trying to push Tristan from me and trying to regain a grip on my gun, which I had almost lost my hold on when I had been tackled. Heather had stepped into the way to cut off Tristan, so he lunged at her and I tried to ram him in the back of the head with the butt of my pistol. He whirled and slammed me with a fist in the temple. My vision went white, and I kid you not when I say that it felt like the different parts of my skull shifted. I was barely standing, and another hit like that would probably have knocked me out, if not killed me. I was reeling, unable to do anything as I tried to recover from the hit, and then Heather squeezed off another pair of rounds. I heard Tristan cry out and hit the floor, knocking me over again in the process. I really couldn't stay upright that day now that I'm thinking about it. I laid on the floor for a good few moments dazed with my head pounding with pain each time my heart beat. Heather came over and helped me to my feet and we both caught our breath while looking at Tristan, who had dragged himself into the next room and was sprawled out on the floor, bleeding from what we learned were four separate gunshot wounds. He was still breathing though, so we called Sergio and said he had to deal with it. The police were already on their way. I felt bad that we had to hurt Tristan, but it's not my place to pass a sentence on him. Holding my head, I sat down on a chair across from him as we waited for the police to arrive. He was groaning in pain but still clearly alive, and I had a feeling that he was going to be fine. I've never been shot before, he mumbled at some point, and I didn't know what to make of that, so I didn't say anything. Stay quiet. Talking isn't going to help, Heather told him. He didn't listen. I hope you're happy. You're hunters, right? Keeping the peace, Tristan said, and I could practically feel the hatred covered in his words. This made me mad, so I looked up at him. He was curled on the floor, holding a hand to his wounds and sneering up at us with his beard. Why did you kill them? I asked, because even though he hadn't told us what he had done, we knew he was guilty from his actions. He wouldn't have attacked us otherwise, and I'm betting that he didn't know we were hunters until we started fighting. Heather grabbed my shoulder after I asked the question. Sam, don't. She urged me, but Tristan was already answering. Of course you wouldn't know. 
Like I said, you're peacekeepers, and I wanted to start a war. Simple as, Tristan muttered, before closing his eyes and turning away. The police showed up afterwards and took Tristan away without any further questions, as usual. Sergio had worked his magic and gotten them not to bother us, so everything went smoothly. What Tristan had told us was disturbing, though. He evidently wanted to start violence between the Robertsons and the Toscas, and he had resorted to killing his own sister and his own niece to do it. It was merciless and horribly wrong, and for both families, it was unforgivable. Heather and I told all the various people involved what had happened, and the Robertsons offered their condolences to the Toscas and offered to help with whatever they may need in the aftermath of all of this. They still don't like each other, though, and I think the Robertsons took Tristan's insane crime almost as proof that the Toscas are bad and not to be trusted. But that's out of our control, and I'm just glad that nobody else was hurt, and that we were able to wrap up things without anybody's secrets being revealed. So that was one of my hunts that was more of an investigation than anything else. It started and ended in a brutal fashion, but it was interesting to say the least. It's also a good example of how hunters and cryptids are pretty much everywhere, not just in the backwoods, the wilderness, or the bush. We're a versatile bunch, and I proved to myself on this hunt that in addition to tracking and biology and combat, I'm also not too shabby when it comes to working and interacting with people. Rebecca, the hunter who I mentioned gave this case to us, tells me that the Robertsons and the Toscas still remember Heather and I fondly, and that they gave their condolences to me for her loss. Let's hope that they continue to get along with each other. Anyway, I think I've gone on long enough. I thought about splitting this into two separate letters, but you guys seem to enjoy the long ones. Hopefully you enjoyed this one. Next time I will probably do a letter discussing interactions between monsters or maybe a Q&A if there's enough material for that. So keep the questions coming if you would like to see that. Otherwise, I think that's all I've got for this letter, so I'll stop here. Take care, stay safe, and we'll talk more soon. This has been Sam White Owl, signing out.